Ladies and gentlemen, uh, hello and welcome to this uh, public event uh, organized by at the LSE by the LSE Research Unit on Southeast Europe. Uh, my name is Vasilis Mastiotis. I will be chairing this uh, uh, public event. I'm director of uh, the LSE Research on uh, Southeast Europe, and this is our first uh, virtual public event since uh, the coronavirus uh, outbreak. And indeed, our event is exactly on this uh, topic with a special focus on the Western Balkans. So our topic concerns the implications uh, of the COVID-19 uh, pandemic in the Western Balkans, the economic, social, and democracy political issues that have arisen from the pandemic and the challenges that uh, lie ahead. Uh, the panel will explore how the countries of the region have been tackling the crisis and how they have responded to the challenges in terms of the internal policies, but also more widely the relations uh, with other countries, particularly the, the, the European Union. To discuss these issues today, we have uh, three very distinguished uh, speakers with expertise, uh, a lot of expertise in the region, uh, and I will take a bit of time to introduce uh, each of them uh, uh, just now. So our first speaker will be uh, Mario Holzner. Uh, Mario is Executive Director at the Vienna Institute for International Economics. Uh, he is also coordinating economic policy development and communication there with a focus on European economic policy. He has uh, worked on issues of infrastructure investment in Greater Europe, uh, also involved in the proposal about the European Silk Road. Um, Mario Holzner is also a lecturer in Applied Econometrics at the University of Vienna uh, in the Department of Economics, and he's done extensive work uh, on the Balkans and the broader Eastern European region through the Vienna uh, Institute. He also holds a PhD in Economics at the Vienna University of Economics uh, and Business. Our second speaker uh, will be uh, Arian Gyonca. Uh, Arian's uh, Associate Professor of Demography here at LSE at the Department of International uh, Development, and he holds a PhD in Demography also from uh, LSE. Uh, he has worked uh, in the University of Tirana in Faculty of Economics, and also has been uh, visiting or affiliated with the Max Planck Institute for Demographic Research, uh, the University of Southampton, University of Bocconi, and, uh, and other uh, places. His research uh, focuses on health and mortality in developing countries, but he has a particular specialization on the demography of the, of the Balkans, for which he's done work both on health, but also more widely on, on education and other issues. In particular with education, he, had recent, he has recently been uh, acted as chair at the Commission for the Reform of Higher Education in Albania in 2013-2015, and he's done work with a number of international uh, organizations, including the World Bank, the UNDP uh, and others. Our third speaker uh, is uh, Sanya Vico, who is a research officer at the European Institute at the London School of Economics, and she is also an associate uh, with uh, LISI, uh, the research unit of Southeast Europe. Uh, she holds an ERC, the European Research Council funded postdoctoral research position in political science at the LSE, and she works on a project on justice inter uh, interactions and peace building. Uh, with reference to uh, the Balkans. He has a PhD from the University of, Gold, uh, of London in Goldsmiths, uh, and she has studied previously also uh, in LSE. Uh, previously, she has also been postdoctoral fellow at the Center for Studies of Global Media and Democracy at, at Goldsmiths, and she has uh, been working as a research consultant and analyst on various projects uh, relating to, uh, to the Balkans. Before we go to our uh, topic, I have to make some organizational announcements. It is now just four minutes past four o'clock in the afternoon in uh, London. Uh, I know we have a quite international audience, so you may be, be, you will be, some of you in different time zones. We aim to finish at 5.30 p.m. Uh, British summer time, uh, London time, so in 90 minutes uh, uh, from now. 
if you want to tweet on uh, on the event, uh, the hashtag that we use is uh, hashtag LSE COVID-19, one word, LSE COVID-19. Uh, and the event, uh, it's an online event. Uh, this is being recorded and hopefully will be made available as a podcast, uh, subject to no technical uh, difficulties. We will have at the second part of the seminar a QA uh, session, so you will be able to post your questions to the QA function um, of uh, Zoom. And then I will put the question, your questions to the, to the panelists uh, who will uh, uh, respond. So you can submit the questions either if you're listening to us on Facebook, uh, directly on Facebook, or from Zoom uh, using the QA uh, uh, function. So, as I said, our topic today is the implications of the handling of the coronavirus crisis in the Balkans, but also the implications in terms of politics, economics, and, and social policy, if you want, or society. Um, I'll pass now the floor to our first speaker, Mario Holzer, who's going to talk on the economic side uh, of this. Mario, the floor is yours. Siri, thanks a lot. Uh, thank you for the invitation. And uh, let me share with you uh, my presentation. Um, which starts here and um, and is based on uh, on work uh, that uh, was done by our uh, country experts uh, and particularly the the coordinator of our country monitoring team and deputy director Richard Griefson. and uh, uh, I would like to uh, start with a a general view that we have uh, about economic development in 2020 for the wider region, Central, Eastern, and Southeastern Europe. We are covering 23 countries there. And uh, overall, on average, um, uh, of these 23, 23 countries, we expect for 2020 a recession uh, that is the worst since uh, basically the transitional uh, recession in the early 1990s, when it was really, on average, something like 11% drop in, in real GDP, uh, while uh, in, in the uh, global financial crisis, we had something like 5% uh, um, drop. And for 2020, we expect something like 6%, although obviously we are, it's still uh, um, uh, early to, to really uh, know what it will be. But that, that's, let's say, our baseline scenario. Uh, obviously, country by country, things look uh, to a certain extent different. There is a certain range depending on a number of factors, which I will mention uh, in a minute. Uh, however, one can say that uh, we expect also quite some robust recovery uh, in uh, 2021 uh, uh, following uh, this uh, dramatic uh, drop. Um, it is interesting to note in this respect that um, in the region, uh, the death rate uh, uh, has been uh, much lower than in Western Europe. Um, uh, actually, difficult to compare. Um, uh, it's, it's even less than, let's say, uh, Germany, Austria. And there are different reasons for that. Uh, one is probably that uh, the Central East and Southeast European uh, countries imposed much stronger restrictions at a much lower level of confirmed cases uh, early on. Uh, so this is like a snapshot from March 15th, um, number of confirmed cases on the horizontal axis, uh, the so-called stringency index that measures 
how strong the restrictions were on the vertical axis. And, and basically, um, most of the wider region is, uh, uh, had introduced uh, a very strong um, uh, uh, restrictions uh, with hardly any cases. And uh, at least until now, uh, the easing of the lockdown measures have been much more cautious in the Western Balkans than in the rest of Europe. The Western Balkans average uh, is the darker dotted uh, line here. Most recently, these days, basically, we hear uh, uh, from, in, for instance, Serbia, uh, Macedonia, somewhat different news. Uh, but this is at least what happened so far. Um, coming to the issue of countries being exposed uh, to a different extent, uh, we believe that there are two major factors um, that will uh, have strong impact on uh, growth outcome. It is on the one hand uh, trade exposure. Um, here we have external trade as a percent of GDP on the horizontal axis. And on the other hand, uh, tourism. And we have here travel and tourism uh, uh, revenues on, um, in, in the most broadest definition percent of GDP on the vertical axis. And here we see that uh, those countries that are in the red circle are the most exposed, for instance, Montenegro. And we saw also in, in one of the figures before that we expect um, in Montenegro quite, quite a strong uh, drop, much, much stronger than, for instance, in, in uh, I don't know, countries like uh, Bosnia, for instance, and not to speak about uh, Kosovo. Um, there are obviously a number of other issues. Uh, also, reliance on capital inflows is important. Um, there is quite some exposure there, um, particularly with regard to uh, remittances by uh, migrant workers, um, uh, basically from Western Europe. Um, so these are important uh, uh, inflows in, in, for instance, uh, Kosovo, Albania, but also uh, FDI inflows. Uh, so we see here uh, last uh, average over the last five available years. This will certainly look very different this year. Um, and also to some extent in some countries, uh, hot money inflows. But there are also some uh, areas of uh, potential resilience uh, for the Western Balkans. There is, uh, as has been said, a generally lower spread of the virus than most of the rest of Europe, although maybe we see most recently a certain change in this, but so far this is the case. Uh, also, generally speaking, again, most Western Balkan economies are much less integrated into the global value chains and uh, particularly the, the automotive sector, which, which will have a problem. Um, there has been also quite some quick and significant uh, international support. Uh, so lessons from 2008 were learned. Also, uh, euro area uh, monetary policy spillovers and, and also support from, from the ECB uh, has been quite, quite good. And there are may, maybe even some positive risks that, that there might be a quicker than expected bounce back, for instance, for tourism. What will happen in the wider region uh, in the next decade? Uh, difficult to say, but it's fair to assume that quite a few things will, will change. Others will remain the same. There might be some opportunity for, from nearshoring, uh, particularly companies from, from Germany, Italy might uh, think twice whether they 
want to have FDI in, let's say, uh, Southeast Asia. So some FDI might be uh, uh, in the future uh, reverted to, to the, maybe the Western Balkans, uh, and, and, but also sent other parts of Central and Eastern Europe. Um, services outsourcing, uh, digitalization, there are pockets of, of modernization already in the Western Balkans where the digital economy plays already quite some, some role. Um, it might be that there, there will be uh, in the future uh, higher and maybe more progressive taxes, a bigger state in general, uh, a bigger role for the state in general in, in economic life. This, this uh, at least the, the, the lessons we, we learned from, for instance, the, the period right after the, uh, the, the Spanish uh, flu, uh, after the First World War. Um, also, after a certain pause, uh, we will probably see again labor shortages and issues of uh, how to deal with that automation that will return again. We, we uh, have a very uh, quickly uh, aging uh, and ultimately, in some cases, even shrinking population in, in the wider region. And uh, probably China's economic role in the region will remain important. So there are a few things which, which probably will not change that much. To conclude, to sum up, uh, many countries from the wider region will face the worst recession since uh, the transition, uh, transitional recession in the early 1990s. There are obviously major uncertainties connected to these forecasts. Um, there's been less spread of the virus in the Western Balkans and uh, Central and Eastern Europe. Um, uh, lock, they locked down early uh, and uh, were more cautious, at least until uh, most recently, about easing the restrictions. There are major vulnerabilities uh, in the Western Balkans, particularly tourism, certain capital uh, inflows, but there are also some factors of resilience, uh, not being that much uh, connected into the uh, global uh, value chains, at least for some countries in the region. And in the longer term, as I said, a lot of things are going to change, but there are some opportunities for the region as well. So thank you very much for your attention. Uh, thank you, Mario. This was very, very well timed. So I have asked the speakers to stay with 10 minutes presentation. So that was exactly 10 uh, minutes. Then. Thanks very much for this. Uh, it is interesting that you mentioned, and I'm sure we can pick it up in the in the discussion uh, afterwards that you, you mentioned the, the low level of integration in global value chains as a, uh, operating as an advantage. And it's funny to see how some of the things that we complain about in, in terms of how the economies develop uh, and how much integrated they are. But it turns out that sometimes when, when bad things come from, from globalization and then and the global integration, uh, that some, uh, uh, you know, controlled uh, integration may may work in a, in a positive uh, way. Uh, we will leave aside a bit the economics issues and go a bit further on the uh, the social issues, but also the, the health uh, dimension of the of the pandemic. Uh, Arian, over to you. Uh, thank you, Vasilis, for and thank you, Lisi, for organizing this. Uh, uh, webinar, uh, very important for the region and um, the whole world. And uh, I will uh, be talking, as uh, Vasily said, uh, about the, some of the main social aspects of uh, um, pandemic. And uh, 
as you can see, uh, I'll be focusing on the social implementation. Some of the main things that I'll be talking today is that briefly I'll talk a bit about the, co uh, the characteristics of COVID-19 pandemic in the Western Balkans. I think Mario kindly introduced a couple of points there and I will move them to the policy response to date because that's where the public policy I would like to see uh, focuses because that's important for the future. But my main focus will be the social implications in the Western Balkans. There are a lot, but I'll focus only a number of them time allowing and a bit of the future implication, policy implications for the pandemic. I would say there are three main characteristics of the pandemic um, in the Western Balkan. First, the very low number of deaths in the initial stages. I think some of the lowest death rates in Europe. It was not by chance. It was because uh, a, a very fast intervention, which I'll address a bit later by the government. Uh, the epidemic we say the epidemic we say that didn't reach a peak uh, rather they, the the countries flattened down the curve apart from probably Serbia but they most of them did flatten the curve uh, down but we see a recent resurgence since the early mid uh, June and in some countries this resurgence is even higher than at the beginning if you look at countries such as Northern Macedonia or Albania or Bosnia, we see that the number of new cases uh, has started to increase, but also the number of deaths in certain days has started to increase. Because this population of these countries are small and the number of deaths take time with a new uh, resurgence of the new cases, this will uh, probably take a bit of, of time. Uh, now, this is not good news because uh, it shows that the moment that these societies were opened from social isolation, we saw a resurgence. These are not the only societies. We've seen that in Germany. We've seen that in some other uh, uh, Western societies or East European societies as well. If you look at the policy response, as, as, as Mario said, one of the main uh, uh, policies or interventions that this guy, this government in the Western Balkans did is a very uh, quick intervention. They went into immediate lockdown when the initial cases were up. I'll explain a bit why they did that. Not that they didn't, they did have much of a choice, but I mean, in some countries such as Albania, the country locked down immediately after the first case was diagnosed, but it was the case in most of the Western Balkans. The second important point to mention, it was a compliance of the population during the lockdown. So what we saw, we saw that uh, most of the population sort of uh, trusted the government and went into the, uh, a lockdown. So, and in that respect, uh, we saw what we call the flattened of the first peak of the pandemic. So we didn't see those small death rates that Mario uh, mentioned. The, the, the last point is the policy of easing the lockdown. As it was mentioned, uh, this policy by the stringency index uh, developed by Oxford is considered as cautious. Now we've got to have in mind two important things when these societies come out of isolation. One is the government policy, the government, the fact that the government is uh, easing some of the lockdown and is doing it slowly, cautiously, but it's also important to see the uh, population compliance to it. So two important aspects. One is, do we have to 
follow a, a strict test and trace? Uh, do these countries have the capacities? The, so far, the uh, epidemic shows that they, that's not working properly. It is working sometimes, but not properly. And the second, the population compliance is not as it was during the main lockdown. So we see a different population behavior towards the regulation. Now, the issue here is, will the population comply? Uh, I, we have some not good examples from the Balkans, and one that we take from public health is the campaign against smoking. Although that these societies do have very strong, very strict uh, legislation on smoking in public places, that's still not stopped. Even in countries when we see some uh, control of that, such as Albania, that's happened because of extremely uh, uh, strong fines that exist. So we will see in the coming uh, weeks and months about the compliance of the population. Did these countries have any choice in terms of uh, uh, the intervention, the, 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 the lockdown uh, policy? I don't think so. It's because the countries that didn't do an immediate lockdown, such as Germany, they did have what we call surge capacities in public health. So did, they did have material and human resources to cope with that. And here, I, I talk that this, some of the budgets of these countries in terms of healthcare expenditure are very small compared to their also level of GDP. And, and we know that, I mean, if you see this graph that puts the GDP per capita as well as healthcare expenditure per capita, we see that most of these countries are very close to each other at the bottom side of the graph. And here is where most of the Western societies uh, are. But we also know that uh, one of the reasons or one of the issues in terms of public health response was the capacity of intensive care units. And uh, um, an approximate indicator uh, that you could get the data on was the acute care beds per 100,000 people in the Western Balkans. And as you can see, most of these countries underperform uh, compared to European Union average here. So all these countries, I don't believe, and a lot of scholars do not believe that had the public health uh, capacities to cope with it. So the lockdown, the immediate lockdown was possibly the best policy to follow and it gave some results. As I said, when I wanted to focus to some of the uh, key social implications, I'll start where, in a way, Mario left. He mentioned remittances and I'll talk a bit about remittances, but not from the capital flows. Uh, in, in these societies rather than the implication aspect of that for some particular vulnerable groups. I'll talk about the strains in public health, which will be considerable in the coming years, not just as a result of only COVID-19 as a pandemic. And I'll talk about social cohesion versus social isolation, something which is very particular for these societies in the Balkans and Mediterranean. I'll briefly start the freedom and civil rights, but it's much more an entry point for the next uh, colleague to talk in more details on that. Uh, we know that a large proportion of the household budget, but also of GDP in, in these uh, societies in the Balkans come from remittances, as high as 17 and 18 percent in some particular years to Kosovo being with the highest uh, personal remittances as percent of GDP per capita, and then you have Bosnia, Albania, Montenegro and most of this country. And if you compare this with the level of Eastern Europe and the Baltics, you can see that these countries do receive a very large proportion 
of a very large uh, amount of transfers as a result of remittances. And the problem with remittances is that in, we, we have a lot of evidence in terms of research. Where do these remittances go? These remittances go to a very particular group of the population, the elderly. Because as we know, if you look at all this population structure of, the, of these countries, the young and the active population, the labor forces emigrated. And that has created a, an, a, an old age population, an elderly population, which are dependent in a majority to remittances. And if these remittances go down, there'll be uh, two effects to that. One will be a direct financial burden for them, so it might increase the poverty. In the, in the Western Balkans, the poverty used to have a young face. Now, in the next decade, it probably will have an old face, with the elderly probably being most affected, because remittances will go down by default. And the second, it will have a, an indirect effect as a result of health care and social care. Social care in particular, because if you don't have any siblings to look out, uh, to look after the elderly, uh, usually this will be in the uh, informal sector with somebody paying, and if they will not have the financial resources, that would be an issue. The second point which I said that I wanted to address was the public health financing. We know that these countries, as I mentioned, do have very uh, small budget and very sm uh, a small um, uh, spending, expenditure in terms of healthcare uh, compared to the rest of, of, of Europe. And as such, that will put some uh, restraint in the budget, in the health budget for the coming years. The restraint will be not just, as Mario said, as a result of economic recession, which these societies will go through, and then the governments will be faced with the burden of where they'll put the money, but there will also be, because of the increased burden of COVID-19 pandemic, a large amount of this budget have gone for the provisions of the pandemic, which means moving the money around from the other uh, sectors of, of public health care, such as tertiary care or even primary health care. What this means is that this will increase the burden of other diseases in the coming years. And this is universal, we'll see that also in Western societies. So it will increase the burden of cancers, the burden of cardiovascular diseases, but in particular, mental health disorder. I mentioned that I briefly will look at social cohesion. A social cohesion uh, in the Western Balkans and in the Mediterranean part of the Western Balkans is, is, is very high. This means that the social networking, the higher social support that exists in this society, the trust in the communities and in each other. Why do we study that? Because they are extremely good mechanism for coping with stress. And under this pandemic, stress is an important element which will probably drive a large number of mental health disorders. But in these societies, uh, <clears throat> social cohesion is a way of life. And if you change the way of life, you'll change a lot about the psychological aspect of living and livelihood in these societies. In the, the main question here is, is social isolation distancing going to change social cohesion? Well, it, let's put it this way. If there will be no vaccine for a long time, I believe the social cohesion will strongly be affected in the Western Balkans. It will mostly affect the health of the most vulnerable people, in particular the people that are alone. And that will increase by default the mental uh, health uh, disorders and the loneliness. My last point on the social uh, 
um, implications has got to do with freedom. I mean, people like myself that have come from that area, we do pay a lot of emphasis on the importance of freedom, on the importance to choose what we want to do. And we know that lockdown and the social isolation, even in the coming months, will affect our, uh, our possibility or ability to move, will be restrictions to meetings with the relatives and friends, restriction in traveling. So there will be restrictions. The freedom to choose uh, will be restricted and is restriction. The, and, and this will go on uh, for a while in the Western, even with uh, very mild measurements of social isolation. The point in here to, to ask is that, will that be used by some of the governments of the uh, Western Balkan societies in a way that they'll misuse in restricting freedom overall in the societies. I don't think I have an answer to that, but it, it will most likely, and probably Sanya will talk more about that and the political aspect of this. But that's another issue to be addressed. So finally, my last slide is about some of the implications. I mean, at present, we need to have more dissemination of information to change the social behavior because it's moved somehow from the government policy to human behavior, to people's response to the policy. And then here we have an issue, the need to be more dissemination rather, uh, and the population to get more involved with it because when the resurgent tells us that they are not applying the social uh, uh, isolation measurements. We also need to shield the most vulnerable because if the epidemic increases and the capacities cannot cope, as we know in some of the Western societies, then you need to shield, particularly the most vulnerable and the elderly. And those policies have to happen now. We're not talking about the next decade. Uh, we need more investment in public health in the coming years. I mean, if there is anything that I believe will change, not just in the Western Balkans, but all around the world, is the way we prepare for the public health in the next coming years. There will be more attention to mental health disorders in the coming years. They already compiled 30, more than 30% of burden of disease in our societies. But to keep the burden of disease at those numbers and not to uh, uh, allow that to develop in more chronic and more deaths, we need more uh, attention towards that. More attention to the most vulnerable groups, not just now, but also for the future. And that's very important. We need not just shield the elderly now. And let's not forget one. These societies are aging very fast. The population of the 60s is more than 20%. And then the next next year, my, our projections tell us that it will be close to 30% in Serbia and Croatia, even in Albania and some other countries, it will be that high. So we need to uh, consider that. Attention should be given to civil rights and freedoms. Democracies of this area are not perfect, and there should be a balanced approach between economic policies and investment and social agenda. We don't need to go into what we went in the UK in 10 years of austerity because we need to get out of the, uh, this uh, crisis. And I'll close it now because I think I have overdone with a few minutes. Thank you very much, Arian. Uh, very many uh, interesting points that we can follow up. I think uh, living in the UK, of course, the, when you mentioned that um, uh, people in the region value a lot of uh, individual freedoms, I think uh, you also get that uh, here in the UK a lot about uh, sort of you know civil liberties and, and individual freedom and how that 
then contradicts the pol or, uh, restricts the policy uh, responses that uh, we can have. But talking about people and behavior, let's look at the, uh, the wider picture and the politics uh, dimension of that, passing the floor to, to Sanya. Uh, thank you so much, Vasilis. Uh, and thank you everyone for, for, for joining us today. Uh, I'll just briefly uh, share my screen. So I will be speaking, um, uh, I'll address several issues. Uh, one would be uh, nation branding during the coronavirus pandemic, um, relations with the EU, migration and, and public opinion. My focus will be on Serbia, mainly because my research has been mainly centered on this country, but I hope that there might be uh, some, uh, there may be some conclusions that can be uh, applicable to other countries. So um, I'm sure that many of you are familiar with these pictures, but I shall briefly say that um, in early March, when uh, the EU's immediate response to the outbreak of the virus was to ban, uh, to put a ban on experts of medical equipment, which infuriated uh, the president of Serbia, who uh, famously called it um, called the European solidarity uh, fairy tale, and then he sought uh, help from from China, and China uh, responded uh, positively to this plea. Uh, shortly afterwards, EU uh, abandoned this ban and uh, provided uh, uh, an aid to Serbia worth uh, 93 million euros. However, uh, China's aid um, received much more uh, attention. Um, and these pictures are both ordinary and extraordinary. They're ordinary uh, in a way that um, this rhetoric uh, has been present uh, in, in tabloids like Informer and similar TV uh, news channels, so there isn't much new about that, but what is extraordinary new is that now this rhetoric is seen on billboards and as such it arguably can reach much uh, greater audience than it otherwise would, so it's basically visible to people who not, don't necessarily read Informer. It also was much more decisively endorsed by, by the officials. What is extraordinary as well, as these pictures are showing, is that um, uh, this, uh, this was picked up by international media. So it made stories in the Financial Times and The Guardian. And the first question that comes up is, who is the audience of these messages? Who, who are the people who this message was meant for? Uh, the answer is both domestic and international audience. Uh, international, it is both China and the EU. Uh, China, um, Serbia um, is the fourth uh, country in Europe of China's um, investments. And uh, this was an opportunity to, to strengthen that, that bond, especially uh, given that the EU uh, enlargement has become uh, increasingly uncertain um, uh, in the past years. Uh, when it comes to, uh, to the EU as an audience to, to, of, of these messages, um, actually we can see that these headlines are, are flattering in a sense that the Balkans and Serbia are presented as a very attractive uh, geopolitical place. It says the fight for influence in the Balkans or how Russia, China and EU need to win, um, uh, to win uh, uh, Serbia's, um, I can't see the title now because uh, it's covering, but generally these are, uh, these, these uh, 
in this sense, it can be it can be argued that um, uh, the the this uh, this aim was uh, effective. Um, there are other um, examples of how the aid became uh, became a means of nation branding and diplomacy, and we can see. Uh, on the 20th, uh, 28th of March, Albania sent um, aid to Italy. Uh, uh, 30 medical staff was sent to help. Uh, Italy at the time was the worst hit country by the pandemic in Europe. And uh, then on the 20th April, again, they sent uh, their aid. And we can see here uh, Italian uh, Minister of Foreign Affairs uh, tweeting to thank uh, Albanian government and people for the second big um, testimony of, of friendship. Uh, five days later, Serbia also sent their aid uh, to, to Italy um, with a message written this parcel, Vinciamo insieme, coraggio Italia, la Serbia con voi. We will win together, courage Italy, uh, Serbia is with you. Uh, but these media uh, representations, as I said at the beginning, also have domestic audience and here we can see the perks of perception. We can see the, the, that the um, uh, majority of, um, of people think that China is the main donor, whereas actually it's the EU by far. Uh, however, still uh, most of the population in the Western Balkans remain very uh, supportive uh, of EU integration. This has been fluctuating over time, but the overall support has remained constant. And at this point, I shall say that also um, uh, Ninety percent of immigration from Serbia is to Europe, out of which two thirds is uh, to move to Western, uh, Western Europe. And this links us to my next point, which is migration. Um, there was a striking trend uh, during the uh, coronavirus pandemic uh, of repatriation across Europe. Um, and we here we see actually that Western Balkans const, uh, um, have the highest rates of immigration among Europe, and it has been recognized as one of key problems uh, for the past few years. Um, and here we can see that uh, data by OECD uh, shows that uh, 49,000 people leave Serbia every year. About 33,000 uh, return. However, those who leave are usually younger people, whereas those who return are mainly older people with families. Um, these are some projections uh, of demographics. Of course, it's not all due to uh, immigration. It's also because of lower birth rate compared to death rates. We, uh, we, we saw also that around 400,000 people uh, was uh, said um, to have returned to Serbia uh, uh, because of the pandemic. However, we still don't know the structure of these people who return, uh, whether these are people who lost their jobs or these are people, these younger people who, for instance, wanted to spend quarantine with their families rather than being on their own in host countries. And again, among those who did lose jobs, whether they uh, you know, intend to stay or they consider uh, consider looking for jobs elsewhere. So this can be an opportunity to attract these people to stay because the more people leave, the less attractive it is for people to stay. So this uh, prompts us to ask what are the motives of those who consider leaving? 
um, uh, West, uh, from the uh, Westminster Democra uh, Democratic Foundation found that uh, people usually uh, mention young people usually mention economic reasons and unemployment. Uh, my study, my my qualitative study of Serbian Londoners um, showed that actually showed a much more complex picture because although professional uh, motives played prominently, they were intertwined with other um, with other reasons such as. Um, identity and values um, and in that sense um, uh, the, uh, the emphasis on on Europeanness was quite prominent especially among the participants who um, who, who had lived in, on other continents uh, and this uh, uh, by identifying as European uh, they attempt to uh, position a Balkan uh, symbolically within Europe uh, to claim, uh, whereas Europe is not just seen in territorial terms, but also uh, in as a symbolic space that embodies certain values that they identify with. And here we see um, that um, this participant's parents wanted to return her to Europe to connect with her roots. Uh, in another uh, quote, we can see also this tension of Balkan being part of the Europe geographically, but not fully European symbolically. He says it is Europe, but it's very different from Western Europe. Uh, again, emphasis on Europeanness is often associated, as I said, with certain values and with openness, as this quote shows, such as openness to difference. But it's all, it is also um, often uh, associated uh, with, uh, with freedoms or certain demo that is certain de democratic standards, as this quote shows. Uh, this participant says, I think the EU is a good thing. I like the idea of free movement of labor, not concerned about the UK as much as for Europe. I'm afraid that the UK hasn't set a good standard that other countries might follow. The EU is actually the only solution for Serbia if the EU falls apart, so we might go backwards. Kind of echoing this transformative power of Europe. This was um, uh, mentioned in, he was reflecting or he was sharing her views of Brexit. And there were participants who did vote for Brexit and who are EU skeptics, but what they mentioned was kind of preservation of British tradition. And when you think what is British tradition, the longest British tradition is actually the rule of law, which was uh, uh, founded with uh, even Magna Carta and Libertatum in 1215. So for all of these participants, in a way, what matter, matters are um, uh, professional opportunities, but also certain values, um, mainly democratic values. Um, and also we can see this identity-driven return to Europe. So um, my concluding remarks in this sense would be as a way of forward, economic recovery is important as we, we saw from presentation, Mario's presentations, Arian's presentation, uh, but so is democracy for these people. And on the other hand, the EU should, do, should uh, also reposition itself as a key international player uh, by promoting solidarity, by um, integrating Western Balkans more in its processes, but also build, building better channels of communication. We, we saw that uh, shaping public opinion is really important and it's important that their messages can reach those who are not necessarily interested in politics or well-informed 
but who are overall um, EU, uh, pro EU integration. And that's, um, that's it for me. Thank you. Excellent. Uh, thank you, Sonia. And uh, I'm very happy that we kept in uh, time. I didn't have to uh, stop anybody. So we have uh, quite a number of uh, questions uh, already, and I would like to um, uh, pass them on uh, to you. But, uh, you know, to give a bit of time also to other people to collect their thoughts, if you want, and prepare the uh, questions, I would like to um, uh, ask a summary question that uh, each of you can uh, can answer. In, in, in the crisis, in the young Eurozone crisis and the global financial crisis. Uh, one thing that emerged from the region was that uh, there was very good, or to, at least to some degree, there was uh, substantially good support by, uh, let's say, the international community, European institutions, and also other organizations, the IMF uh, and others, um, the, um, uh, the VN initiative and so forth, to stabilize the banking system uh, and, and so forth. Uh, that helped the region a lot. But actually, we had a significant experience of uh, what I would call good policies uh, in the region. So it, during at least the second phase of the crisis, the, the Eurozone crisis, uh, central banks did the right thing, uh, although, of course, the region is uh, affected a lot by domestic politics and, you know, the various dimensions of it, including the uh, the ethnic identity uh, and so forth uh, dimension, but policies at the macro level seem to be on the whole good, which uh, uh, created confidence in the international markets and then, uh, you know, in some uh, way or another, uh, provide more resilience uh, uh, to the economies in the Balkans. Would you have a similarly positive uh, assessment for the policies um, that have been applied so far, I mean, you, you all touched upon issues of policy. Fanya was talking more about, if you want, the, the diplomacy of uh, uh, of treating the coronavirus, but uh, of course, Mario, on the economics scenario and also on the on the on the health uh, dimension. How would you evaluate the policy? Would you say also comparing to uh, maybe the countries where you're based, uh, or more generally the responses in Europe, thinking about what happened in Italy and Lombardy, but also other complaints also here in the UK. How, how confident can we be that you know, all the negative things we say about the region, about corruption and clientelism and low governance capacities, uh, can we have a positive message of good governance and good policy uh, responses? Who would like to, to start with a positive note? Um, I don't know, should I say something first? Or, or, um, well, I mean, because you 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 asked whether there is a chance also of, of a, for a financial crisis maybe or how how would that be tackled or so I mean uh, it's it's like it used to be also during the the, the last crisis the it's in a way an advantage that uh, the region does not possess own banks <laughs> the 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 whole banking system is owned. Uh, basically by by foreign banks uh, Austrian banks Italian banks. And maybe one or two Belgian and, and, and French banks, and and in that sense, it has indirect direct access to uh, ECB uh, uh, money that, and the ECB is flooding uh, this this whole continent with 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 money, which is it is a good thing for for the financial system, and the ECB has probably learned from the problems that happened last time uh, in the last crisis when they too early started to increase 
the interest rates and 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 stopped uh, um, uh, monetary easing. So in that sense, it's maybe not so important what the economic policy response in the region is, but rather what the policy of the ECB and the fiscal stance of the uh, euro area member states, particularly Germany, and in that respect also Italy, um, will be. And here we see a more positive development than uh, in the last crisis. I think there has been a change in the, in the overall mindset, uh, particularly in the German finance ministry, which which is very positive. Apart from that, uh, I mean, uh, a lot of the policy response so far in the region itself was not that bad, but it was a lot of announcements where we do not know exactly um, how much that really is in real terms. All right. Uh, thank you. Uh, it's a bit difficult to predict because there are two different types of crisis. This is, that's why we called it a pandemic because everybody has been affected, the economy of every country and more the countries, the, 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 the far richer countries, the, the high income countries are affected more. I mean, I agree with Mario that more than their own internal financial or economic policies will be how EU and the European Central Bank will react to and, uh, and EBRD will react to support these economies. But there is a big question and the big question has to do with what will happen with the Western economies? Will there be a, a central focus on self-reliance and more on then internal production of their own issues rather than the idea of globalization and helping the finance all around with more internationalization or will that go in the opposite and and and, and that will depend uh, on probably as Mario said I mean the, the the way EU goes about it and also certain policies but the initial signs in UK are such that we will be seeing more internally rather than inter externally if you think about the fact that we didn't have enough tests, but now we're producing, we are creating a public company uh, in pharmaceutical industry to, to, to create our own tests. So we are more prepared as a public service. So we're more self-reliant on our own uh, production. I don't think that would be a good trend for the future for low and middle income countries. As to the health, I don't think it would be much different. I hope that health and other social aspects will not suffer like the last financial crisis that were left behind, in particular in the country that the two of us uh, uh, reside in UK. I hope that the economic, I mean, one of the important things to, to bear in mind is that the economic recovery should take social agenda into account, different from previous crisis. Uh, so we have seen uh, positive developments when it comes, for instance, with the relationship with the EU in Western Balkans. More recently, we have seen positive exchanges between Serbia and EU uh, representatives. And also, um, in that sense, it's important readiness for Belgrade and Pristina to, to negotiate. But on the other hand, we uh, Montenegro... Um, uh, the EU opened the last um, uh, chapter of negotiations with Montenegro, which was also positive. Before that, we've seen in March that uh, Albania and North Macedonia received green light uh, to start um, uh, accession negotiations. So there are uh, positive developments in this relationship uh, and relationship, uh, international relationships of the Western Balkans. Um, 
So in that sense, um, they are even even though uh, um, uh, we have seen the negative effects of the crisis uh, of the uh, health crisis, there were also these uh, po positive, I would say, uh, developments. But of course, um, opening uh, the chapter, for instance, doesn't mean that other chapters uh, that were open are are now closed. So there is still a lot of work to be done here. But I think this was a positive signal. Uh, from the EU that they still have interest in um, in accession and interest in the Western Balkans. Also in terms of the aid they sent and um, uh, plans for, for future um, help in terms of economic recovery. Thank you, uh, Sanya. So I'm uh, trying to uh, collect some uh, questions from the, um, uh, from the audience. Um, I think I would like to start uh, on the topic of, of the welfare state. Uh, and uh, in a way, each of you touched upon issues on uh, the welfare state. So we have uh, Arian Lorenzo, a former student uh, of yours, who sends uh, greetings, uh, asking what, uh, if you can elaborate on uh, exactly on that, on the effect of the uh, COVID uh, on the um, uh, welfare state, uh, welfare systems in the Balkans, Will the crisis galvanize an expansion on social protection or will the cost incurred uh, bring a period of austerity? Uh, and I think there's uh, other questions on the uh, uh, welfare state as I'm uh, trying to locate the, the specific question. Uh, I, it was addressed to Mario. Mario, you said that uh, one of the implications that you see prospectively is the idea that uh, we'll have a stronger state, uh, a stronger role of the state in the economy, uh, partly to increase uh, or the need for increased taxation. So, um, actually, one of the brought it uh, from uh, the University of Oxford, um, who was also with us in an event we had in Belgrade uh, in the life before coronavirus. Um, so, the question is, how do you see that this may affect this? You know, the stronger role for the state may affect spending on the welfare state in the region, uh, and especially programs that are not provided on social insurance principles. And um, so the ones that are basically addressing the most vulnerable uh, population. I can also link to another question uh, on, on welfare state uh, dimension, um, which is about, um, because we talked a bit about the remittances and the elderly, uh, but how, uh, or to, some degree, to any degree, is there any effect that uh, we could say similarly for children or the gender balance for females uh, and so forth. And also whether, uh, perhaps addressed a question from uh, Vesna, our colleague uh, to Sanya, uh, our colleague Vesna was here at LSE, uh, of whether the people who you can access, the, the, you know, the Balkan migrants uh, in the UK, whether they have a different experience of uh, policies and different attitudes to the EU, whether enough is being done in relation to welfare state policies uh, for people uh, in the in the region uh, to feel that, uh, that there's positive progress um, and, and then to favor also deeper integration. I mean, confidence in domestic politics, but also integration with the EU. So a range of topics, but they all touch upon aspects of welfare state. Um, shall I start this time from uh, Arian, uh, the response to, we'll go to Sonia and uh, Sanya and then Mario? Well, thank you. Uh, I think that's a good question and it's an important one when it comes to 
uh, the social agenda. I mean, will the welfare state be influenced and how it will be influenced? Well, it will be influenced. In any economy that shrinks by five to 10%, the welfare state will be influenced. The point is that what will be the policies to improve and not to pass the social consequences to the peoples of those, to the populations of those countries. And we do have a couple of good experiences in the past. We don't have just the bad experience of the last uh, financial crisis in UK with the austerity that all the health and education and the welfare state suffered. We do have the experience of a false, uh, the, the post, uh, the Keynesianism approach to the post depression with huge public investment, which probably will be an approach also followed by some of these governments. Um, and, and that's where the role of uh, banks such as EBRD and other uh, international funding bodies will help. The second point to make is that we had the Atlas government after the second war, which was very, uh, welfare state directed at some of the top policies that we have today from the creation of national health service to uh, a lot of other policies on housing etc are policies that do help through employment but easing also the social consequences so i think there are positiveness to take out of this in terms of welfare state policy i think I'll leave it to, to this for the others to answer, but I think you had a sub-question. Was it for me on a children and gender perspective? Uh, if, if I may answer that, yes. I mean, most of the demographics and social consequences in the Balkans do have a gender flavor. And um, there will be. Uh, I just finished some work on that, which is going to come to be published in, in, in very short, that you see this gender disbalance in uh, households, in other parts of the societies, the close down has been associated with violence. We need to wait for research to come out of that. But in terms of the elderly, I don't see any, any uh, we don't have evidence so far that, the, that there is a discrimination in terms of poverty at the old age. We do have a children. In some societies, we do have males favored in terms of nutrition and wealth uh, and, 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 and the care in the households compared to females. And I'll close it here. Sonia? Um, my response to Vesna, um, or to, yeah, uh, was uh, the, uh, my, my study first was qualitative. So in that sense, I can't speak about percentages. Uh, also, what I, I under, uh, what I found out was that professional reasons do play prominently. But uh, what qualitative methods uh, afford us is actually to dig deeper into narratives and understand, you know, the, the, the actual substance of their motives. Because when people start talking more about it, then you understand that there is actually a mix of, uh, of motives. And there are other studies on migration, you know, that also show this. Uh, quantitative studies, because of their, uh, you know, method approach, uh, um, uh, inevitably slight, slightly sometimes simplifying uh, what, what we can see. Uh, so uh, in this sense, uh, professional motives are key thing that my participants would mention, but then when we start talking, you understand 
that it's also about certain values, about how society is structured and how society functions. Then they mention certain freedoms. And then you understand that these motives are actually very interrelated. It can well be that people uh, who consider leaving uh, don't have exactly the same motives as those who have already left and then start reflecting what their motives were. Uh, but uh, this is what I could found through my research. On the other hand, we sh I should say that also the migration to, to the UK was, um, was in a way pe peculiar because they are overall uh, roughly defined middle class. Um, so in that sense, that can be also why their motivations are su uh, as such, unlike some other countries, and that, this is historically been like that, uh, unlike some other countries such as Germany or Austria, uh, where you had more so-called economic migrants, but I'm although very critical of these terms um, because we can see that uh, people, uh, these young, well-educated people also migrate for economic reasons. Um, uh, I hope I answered your question, but please uh, feel free to, to add some question if I miss to address something. Thank you, Sanya. Mario, would you? Yeah, there was also a question I saw on, on, on the exactly this migration issue and whether there will be another brain drain. Yes, uh, I, 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 was going I, think, to, I was planning to bring in the migration issue. As I think that, that is related somehow. I mean, certainly what we will see in, in, the, in the next uh, uh, year or two is another wave of uh, uh, people trying to get out of, of the region. <coughs> As, as obviously the, the, the usual push and pull factors for migration, uh, a lot of them are unemployment, wage differentials, or uh, a prospect of a very slow convergence. And, and that's all there even more than maybe uh, a year ago. So <clears throat> it's fair to assume that there will be another uh, massive wave of, of, of migration out of the region. And that will have... Uh, the effects we have been touching upon already. Um, and uh, also, uh, I think Ayan showed the, the projections from the United Nations uh, on, on, on population development. If you look at the uh, population in working age, uh, then that is even more uh, uh, worrying. And, uh, and so uh, with the projections as they were before, you can just imagine what they will be uh, uh, now in the wake of the crisis. So, uh, and, and then uh, something will happen very likely. What happened already before, for instance, in the Baltics, in Central Europe, where these processes uh, were more severe already for quite a while and were basically, uh, like in the Czech Republic, uh, we reached almost uh, or basically reached full employment uh, uh, a few years ago. And uh, in many of these countries, we saw for instance, uh, uh, that the flat tax system was abandoned, uh, a progressive taxation was included, uh, that pensions were increased, that all kinds of social uh, um, transfers, but also uh, various other uh, welfare state elements were uh, uh, increased, were, were stepped up. And I think that is uh, the likely scenario also for the Western Balkans uh, over the medium to longer term uh, from uh, going uh, now uh, from this crisis uh, a few years uh, forward. Uh, and, uh, and that 
makes also sense in many other ways. Uh, it is also uh, uh, apart from nationalism that we have been consuming quite a lot in the region. It's also a way to uh, keep uh, the population at home, particularly the young ones, uh, give them prospect of a future, at least for their kids, with a better healthcare system, a better schooling and so on. Uh, and in that sense, it's also actually a policy for competitiveness, uh, reducing also the costs and the risks for the individuals, for the employers also who want to invest and want to plan uh, and see whether there is demand for their products and so on. So I think, I think that will, uh, uh, is, is, is not an unlikely scenario uh, that could happen in the medium to long run. Right, thanks. Can I, can I bring uh, Arjen on, on, on this question about brain drain? And I would also like to mention a question by our colleague Tana Perlitz, uh, who asks, uh, let me find it. Uh, this is uh, Alicia Fillet, but also a research fellow at, uh, in, in Oxford, the University of Oxford. And she asked particularly you, Arjen, says, uh, can you tell us what kind of impact did the high levels of immigration from the region, especially of medical staff, have in terms of the Western Balkans government responses, response, and in how uh, uh, the impact on how Western Balkan health systems were coping? Um, of course, we know that there's this kind of brain drain of medical staff from uh, the region. So if you can relate all that, and of course, then if there's some sort of return policy, that would be, um, you know, working on the positive side for, for the region. Arian, you're muted, so if you can unmute. Thank you for the questions, very important and, and, and important questions for the region in particular. I've been talking in the last 10 years in the region on different forums that the most important demographic phenomenon that needs focusing and particular policies immigration is not just fertility because they've been focusing too much on fertility. And most of our research recently shows that the aging of the population, some of this societies come mainly from the middle as a result of shrinking working age population rather than lower long-term levels of fertility. So yes, immigration is extremely important, has been important in the past few years, will be important in the future. I mean, my only difference from what Mario said is that in the next two years, I do not see strong migration wave. It might be afterwards, medium term, not short term. The reason being is because the pool factors will not be strong because the unemployment will be high in the Western society. Plus the migration from the Balkan has got a family component. You need somebody to go somewhere. And, and because of the unemployment and because of the financial difficulties, the shorter migration might not be high. However, coming to Tena's question about the medical professional, I believe that there will be specialized emigration. And that's because of the needs in the Western societies will be such. There will be need for medical profession. I mean, the whole university system in Albania has been directed in producing nurses, medical doctors, and uh, medical professionals for the Western societies. I mean, much more than the needs of the country itself. And that's been continuous for the last 10 years. So I believe there will be specialized emigration for uh, from uh, these countries. Coming to the general question, I think, from the colleague from social policy at Oxford, how important was the lack of medical profession to the uh, crisis and the way the public health responded? Uh, if you read, I mean, there is a 
contradiction. The popular belief is that these countries seem to have a shortage of human resources. In fact, they produce a lot. They might not have the experience, medical, professional, there, but they do have the numbers. So the numbers are not that bad. The main problem is the technology and investment in tertiary care and in other uh, aspects of hospitalization rather than human resources. I don't think it was a reason on the way they reacted, but it, is, it was a fear. These governments knew that they had very little investment in public health care in terms of readiness. I don't think it was mainly human-driven rather than hospital-driven in terms of intensive care units. Uh, thank you, uh, Arjen. So I'm trying to organize the questions and uh, um, I, I want to go actually on this uh, point that we raised about the second wave, uh, uh, the possible second wave, and how now, although we had a lot of compliance, perhaps surprisingly a bit for the region, uh, in the first phase of the, of the imposition of the restrictions, um, now perhaps compliance is uh, withering and uh, uh, in, the, in the danger of a second phase, uh, we may have very big concerns about the effectiveness of, of policy uh, measures. So if I can uh, locate, the system does not uh, help me uh, hugely, but um, I want to bring in particular a question from, um, uh, from Flora, uh, from North Macedonia, student, uh, if I can find uh, the, the question, yes. Um, uh, because she, uh, she says she's an analysis student from North Macedonia, uh, and said so this is to all speakers, says although the Western Balkan countries had a good response at the beginning of the crisis, the situation seems to get worse in North Macedonia, Serbia, currently Kosovo and so on. What are the reasons behind this? And my guess would be party interest in corruption, but I would like to hear your opinions. Let me also link this to a question by Agath Nowak uh, from uh, University of Edinburgh, a student from France, who says that given that cases in North Macedonia are still quite high and rising, rising by roughly 200 a day, you believe that the ease of lockdown is linked to the upcoming election. So again, the political electoral uh, uh, dimension. I think also the issue of elections and political stability comes from another question uh, that I will read to you just uh, um, very quickly. Uh, Jessica Mari from JP Morgan Research Department. Um, how concerning would the change in political leadership be right now? Uh, we have seen stability in the recent Serbian election, but the upcoming Croatian election looks more uncertain. Of course, I'm, I'm pretty sure we can have uncertainty in the region <laughs> throughout uh, at short notice. So, um, yes, what happens with compliance and whether people's responses are linked to politics and whether politics are responding to that, especially electoral cycles and so forth. Um, would like to uh, speak to this uh, set of questions. I can briefly mention that um, at, the, at the beginning, we, you know, uh, we could see that people were complying, but also at a certain point, uh, by uh, mid-April or late April, also this kind of support for, for, for these policies were subsiding. So it's also a matter of, you know, to what extent certain uh, policies can be effective, whether at what point people will not be uh, complying. Obviously, it depends on uh, measures that the government will introduce, but also in order for these measures to be effective, it needs certain support from the people. So um, I'm not, 
the best expert to speak about, you know, uh, about health issues. Uh, so um, I think this requires uh, an expert on, uh, on health and economics, perhaps, to kind of uh, to, to understand uh, whether this was too soon to lift uh, these measures. But from the point of public opinion, I can say that um, the public support was deciding at, at, at the point of like late, late April. Yeah, I mean, I can come in about the second wave because I think I mentioned it a bit and one of the question, questions was addressed to me. I, I, I don't believe that the second waves in these countries are, have to do anything with the political scenarios because then it looks like a, a, a too, too far-fetched situation that happens at all countries at the same time. I think I'll go back to what I said that the second wave has to do with human behavior and the strictness of the policies of uh, uh, easing down. And, and I brought the, the, the one of the most important public health policies, the smoking, because it has worked in one particular country that most of us thought it was not going to work, Albania. It has worked purely because of very high penalties that exist. So you don't see smoking in public places. There. And it hasn't worked out in, in places I expect it to work, such as Greece, Serbia, Croatia. It hasn't worked fully there. What does it tell us? It tells us about the way the population react to certain policies. I believe the easing of the lockdown should have been accompanied similar to Italy with high penalties for breaking certain rules. We have seen that in UK. In UK, it's happened the same as in the Balkans. It's been eased, but not with high penalties. So in that respect, uh, I personally expect the numbers to go up in, in, in UK as well, not just in the Western Balkans. So I think the easing should be it's more to do with, A, as Sanya said, people's compliance. People need to be more informed. And if they are informed and don't comply, high penalties should be in place. Right. Mario, would you like to say something or should I move to? Well, maybe just, uh, just a word because, I mean, I think today we are all health experts, a little bit at least. And um, I mean, I think it will also have to do a lot with um, how frightened people are. I think that was, uh, that is an important element in all of this and, and what are the pictures uh, people will see and will be presented. And uh, I mean, today you, you had on Twitter um, photos of, uh, of, from Sanjak, I think, uh, where you had obituaries, a lot of them really uh, from from the uh, the old people who died uh, the last days, you know, and I think that will that will that will uh, be important. In, in but difficult to predict how big this wave really is. The experts say that the virus might have changed a little bit into a, a softer version and so on. You know, it's 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 hard to say. Hmm. Can I add something to what Mario said? Because that's really scientific. We know from different pandemics. We know that people in Sub-Saharan Africa changed behavior regarding HIV AIDS when, this, when death started to live with them around. They started to believe that this was real and was taking place. And we know that in, in Lombardy, in, the, in Italy, people are much more compliant with the regulation because that's where 
the intensity of this pandemic has been the strongest in Europe. Yeah. Um, we're uh, almost running out of time. We have just over another 10 minutes. So there's a big number of questions. I, I want to go to the uh, a big set of questions about FDI and the day after and the economy. But um, let me bring a couple of uh, questions partly related to that from our Facebook uh, uh, audience. So Yasmina Mekonia uh, from Croatia uh, is asking how can countries in the Western Balkans compete economically uh, in the post-COVID world, assuming the post-COVID world is coming sometime soon, <laughs> of course. Um, can they cope with the inevitable deterioration in the fiscal position? Uh, what are the main economic policies that we should, uh, the government should implement in the, at least in the medium term? And I guess uh, this question goes mostly uh, to Mario. Um, and uh, another question by a student, uh, Jean-Claude Bimana from Harare in Zimbabwe, and asking with a question with more general interest of how the post-COVID-19 political economic uh, the, the policies are going to address the current state of digital divide for uh, less developed countries, developing countries. Uh, so I, I think there was a mentioning on that, that uh, post-COVID still the labor shortages and automation uh, would still be uh, an issue. I would like to put these uh, uh, questions uh, uh, to Mario. There's also a couple of questions um, on, on FDI, the role of FDI. Uh, partly whether Chinese FDI can come in and uh, support more than European FDI, and I think quite the opposite was the uh, suggestion by Mario. Uh, but also uh, some other uh, questions, I think, by uh, a former student, uh, Fahil, uh, and by Tena as well about the role of FDI. Uh, Mario, if you would like to kind of provide um, some comments on all these uh, topics. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. Um, uh, well, the, the basic idea was that, uh, and I have to say Chinese FDI is still not very important. It increased uh, quite a bit, but still it's, it's, it's really negligible. China is present with uh, construction projects that are financed by Chinese state banks and uh, uh, operated by, by Chinese companies. But uh, in terms of FDI, it's really a German FDI, a bit of Italian FDI uh, in the a production sector and in the service banking sector, financial sector, it's, it's maybe Austrian FDI and so on. But uh, if we uh, uh, want to look at, um, uh, at very productive uh, uh, investments uh, that the region is longing for, not only since, since yesterday, but for a long time, uh, and was mostly uh, passed by by investors. Uh, and then we are talking about still about car industry, machinery, uh, um, about uh, core elements of the manufacturing sector. Uh, and um, uh, we know because of the wars, uh, most of this FDI went to Central Europe and uh, a lot of FDI also went to Asia. Uh, and so the idea is now that maybe there will be something like this nearshoring coming, uh, that less FDI will go far away from Germany and Italy and rather will, will, will be uh, invested uh, in closer places, including the Western Balkans. And here, traditional uh, FDI support uh, uh, is obviously a good idea to have. Uh, there are also, on the regional level, 
uh, with uh, also including the RCC and a number of uh, players uh, trying to to organize also um, uh, a branding of the region uh, as an investment destination because after all we should not forget these are tiny countries uh, the combined Western Balkan GDP is something like half of the Greek GDP uh, so we are really not talking about a, a huge market maybe Serbia which is about half of this again but in the end these are all more or less something like city-states like it's the capital and a little bit around it you know and uh, uh, so, so in that sense, uh, a classical FDI policy will make it, but also I think elements of this welfare state, of increased welfare state will be important to actually keep also the workforce uh, uh, at home. Otherwise, if there is no one uh, uh, left to work, then also investment uh, will not come. Okay, I would like, uh, thanks Mario, I would like to also uh, add another uh, set of questions to you uh, before moving to uh, the other uh, topics. So we had a couple of, uh, a few policy people. So François Jacob from uh, uh, the UN delegation in Serbia is asking about uh, an opportunity, the crisis as an opportunity for green growth. And also Alessandro Zanotta, uh, also from the EU delegation in Serbia, I think is uh, making a similar point about green growth. Uh, and whether COVID, as it also we see changes uh, behavior from the consumer side, um, uh, you know, and, and also maybe you know buy locally uh, and things like that. Whether it, it provides also opportunities for new job creation um, uh, in the, you know in, in green sectors. And we see, for example, in Serbia, uh, the response has been very much in uh, you know investing in existing, uh, uh, if you want, energy. Uh, uh, solutions, energy models, so not the green shift that uh, one would be hopeful about. Mario, would you think there is uh, a reason to think about a future post-COVID which is going to be more green in the Balkans? Well, difficult to, to see this from, from the current perspective, I have to say. Um, it, it really depends on... on, 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 on on, on certain project, do you find also someone who is uh, a big player, maybe in a certain field, and and uh, and uh, makes an investment, and you hope that there will be similar, uh, um, maybe also local offshoots uh, uh, coming in. So so uh, one big player can make a big difference. Yeah? But from from the current structure, it's very traditional, uh, uh, old old style uh, manufacturing. Uh, that is coming to the region, and I would assume that this this is also what what we will see in the future. The digitalization thing is maybe something else, and I think Sanya or Arjan uh, mentioned it before. Uh, in this crisis, the old people uh, in general uh, uh, have the bigger problems, also economically, uh, while the young people might be uh, in somewhat uh, better position. Uh, and and we 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 know from particularly the urban areas in the Western Balkans, that there are already a number of interesting local uh, businesses in the, in the digital economy. And uh, that also uh, China, but also, uh, I don't know, IBM and, and, and firms, Microsoft are having their, uh, uh, in a way, farming uh, uh, institutions uh, present, uh, looking for, for the brightest people in, in, in that area. And so that is something that, that certainly uh, is already in the making and might have a future in the region. 
Thank you, Mario. I think I will uh, try to close with another set of questions uh, which uh, uh, go a bit on EU relations, but also aspects of uh, freedom uh, and so forth. So mainly addressed to Sanya, but uh, I will go first to Sanya then um, leave the floor to Arian uh, as the, the last uh, uh, speaker uh, in the Q&A. So I think uh, there were so let me uh, locate the questions and run them quickly. Thank you for your patience. Um, uh, so Leonard Oldenborg from Goldsmith uh, asks Sanya, what, uh, when you speak about better communication from the EU to the populations of the Western Balkans, what form do you think that could have, that should take? Uh, so that's a very specific question on your presentation. Um, and uh, then I have uh, a question on um, so it's just trying to locate. Um, um, sorry for the, the uh, pause here. Um, yes, so a question both to Sanya and to Arian. What does restriction of economic freedom imply for the area, for, for the, the region in the COVID, uh, post-COVID period? Joining the EU involves such restrictions. Uh, so loss of individual freedom and of collective freedom, as we know from the Brexit uh, saga, uh, as well as it involves also changes in all habits, uh, including attitudes towards women. How can the new coronavirus situation and the restrictions be presented, negotiated and enforced, uh, for instance, in Albania and North Macedonia, how they change attitudes and how does this link to the restriction of uh, or the sense of individual uh, freedom? And then a question more to, to Arian by Diana Bhatti. Uh, you mentioned that democratic values of people who live abroad in relation to them who live in the country, most in Albania, Kosovo, Serbia, uh, North Macedonia, Montenegro. What kind of role are states, I imagine, in the region we follow related to the economy? Do you think it is time for the region to realize uh, immigration, uh, so to, I think, open up for migration within the region? And um, I, I suppose, uh, integrating, uh, you know, movement of people within uh, the region, uh, also in relation to responding to the uh, crisis. So uh, I think, uh, as my last set of questions, is that specific question of the EU communication uh, to Sanya, but also wider questions about um, democratic freedom, both at the institutional level, policies and restrictions, also coming from the EU as well, uh, but also uh, at the individual level and behavioral uh, responses. So Sanya, if you could respond to that, and then Arian uh, will give the floor to you. Uh, the issues with uh, communication uh, were actually identified very early, uh, even in Simon Hicks' book on uh, political system of the European Union in 2004. At the time, uh, our media landscape was uh, much different, or environment, in a sense. Um, uh, he was talking about a lack of uh, a TV station. Uh, dedicated to EU, but today, uh, as we live in a more digitalized world, that would mean navigating this digital media environment better. And it includes many things. At the moment, what I can see is the presence on Twitter, but Twitter is not representative of the whole population. That's one thing, around 11% uh, of, of the Serbian population uses Twitter. The other thing about Twitter is fragmentation that people who are interested, whether they agree or disagree, are the ones who are going to follow or comment um, someone on Twitter, whereas uh, 
uh, the population actually that uh, the EU needs to reach out to is are those that are not that much interested in politics. And uh, in the world uh, led by algorithms that might uh, involve also figuring out how these algorithms work and how they can reach uh, reach these segments, we, we, we could see also that billboards are used uh, as, as, as also as a method, but sometimes this method is not effective. Uh, it, it, there was an example of EU billboards in, in, um, in Wales, um, in a smaller town, which actually uh, voted to, to leave. Uh, and what they found out, it was because of adverts that they were seeing on, on Facebook. So um, there is no really a straightforward and simple answer just because the digital environment is so complex, but certainly navigating this environment better and using more, more actually channels and tools uh, would be um, would be my answer when it comes uh, to I the think we have one, just one minute, and I want to pass um, the floor to Arian. Yes, so, uh, thanks, Sanya, and sorry for, uh, but we had too many questions. Uh, Arian, can you, you want to take the last uh, minute before we say goodbye? I will, okay, thank you. I will briefly say that at the issue of democracy and freedoms and human rights in the region, we don't have full democracies in this region. We are aware of that. The democracies are frail. And one of the things in the EU-Western Balkan relationship shouldn't just be about economics and legal aspects. It should be about values as well. And democratic values should be a normative for these countries to be part of this. And it should be work. We know some of those rights have been abused even during the pandemic. I think Sonia talked about it, but I can carry on and talk it. But these are extremely important. And we know that in, 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 in crisis a situation, those freedoms and rights are sometimes abused, so care should be given to them. Okay, let me thank all the speakers. Thank you very much for your contributions. This is a very big topic, so we couldn't cover all of it, but we tried to respond to most of the questions. A great thank you to the audience, and please visit, please visit us again in LSE uh, and the Research Unit on Southeast Europe for more of these events and discussions. Thanks to all, and goodbye. Thank you. Thank you. Right, thank you. Thank you.